You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. David Dubelay is a member of the Royal Photographic Society in the International Diving Hall of Fame. He has been a contract photographer for National Geographic since 1976 and has shot numerous articles for publication. He's the author of Light in the Sea, Water, Light, and Time, The Kingdom of Coral, Australia's Great Barrier Reef, and Fish Face. He's been awarded the Sarah Prize, the Lowell Thomas Award, and the Lennart Nilsson Award in Photography. Thank you for joining me, David. Thank you. David, I'd like to talk first about your beginnings as a photographer. When did you first find an interest in the water, and when did you first find an interest in photography, and when did they come together? It's very funny that uh, I tend to keep reflecting back on when I began to be underwater to uh, realize what I wanted to do in my life. This festival, the Blue Film Festival, and our participation in it is a gathering of all of these people around the world, all sorts of photographers, filmmakers, people who visually go down to the sea with cameras. And it's a time when, you know, I I think that the first time I really changed direction in my life was not in the ocean, but in a small lake in a summer camp in the Adirondacks near Keysville, New York. I was a dreadful camper. I hated horses. I had asthma. They made me wheeze to the top of a half a dozen Adirondack peaks. I gazed over the mountains and wheezed back down. I didn't like archery. So they sent me to the docks by the lake, and they said, why don't you uh, clean out some branches under the dock, and here's a face mask so you can see. It was a French blue face mask. I put it over my head, pulled the skirt around my uh, face so it wouldn't leak. And I'm standing there, I guess I was eight or nine years old, and I put my head underwater. And here was a world that was green, fish going in and out of shafts of light, fields of green flowing algae going back and forth, soft like cotton, some stuff under the dock, a big dock spider, a spider about the size of a dinner plate, and everything changed. I was 10 years old. I was reading The Silent World, and there's that a part in it where Jacques Cousteau, who was the father of all of the idea of humans going underwater, living, breathing, swimming, looking around, wrote this. I'm going to paraphrase it. He said, I was in a place called La Morion, near Toulon, on the French Riviera. He was a naval officer. He put his head underwater, and civilization vanished with one last bow. And I knew that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I didn't want to come back up to the surface. Everybody yelled at me on the surface. I was, uh, in many ways, a kind of a chronic underachiever. But when I could go underwater, it all disappeared. Well, that's really an an amazing story. And the way you tell it, I think, suggests um, an early understanding of the division between the the above the ocean and beneath the ocean and, and... and a vision of, of underneath what's underneath the, the water. Talk about um, your first experience trying to take a photograph at all. What, what made you interested in photography? 
people go underwater for a lot of different reasons. The obvious reason for people really going underwater in the beginning was the desire to kill fish. And after a, a little while trying to shoot a fish, it's frustrating, it's exciting, it's hunting. I became very, very bored with it. I wanted to be a photographer. Not only did I read The Silent World, but I read National Geographic magazine. And there was a photographer there, a writer, who turned out to be a great mentor, a hero. His name was Louis Marden. And uh, he went with Cousteau during the Silent World expedition when they filmed the Silent World. Louis Mall was the director. They went down to the Red Sea. They went across the Indian Ocean to a place called Assumption Island near Aldabra Island. And Louis Marden wrote about this and produced a 45-page story in the magazine called Camera Below. And I kept that magazine. It was like a personal Bible. I would look at the pictures. I would go back and forth. I would remember everything he said. I remember the stories about Louis Marden, things written about him by the late James Dugan. He was my hero. I never had baseball heroes, but I will need to tell you a baseball story anyway. Really? So here I am, back in New Jersey, in Elbron, New Jersey. I'm nine years old. This is after the summer camp. You uh, Children had to be busy 100% of the time, all the time, never ending, 24-7, even before the expression 24-7 existed. So my parents sent me to a place called Bob Barabee's Athletic Baseball Camp. And Bob Barabee's Baseball Camp was actually on the grounds of the Asbury Park High School. And there was a kind of a swamp and a meandering river on the other side of the baseball diamond. And of course, being a lousy, lousy baseball player, you get sentenced to outfield. So I'm there in the outfield, quite bored, looking at the giant dragonflies that were coming in and out of the cattails of the swamp. It was probably a sewer outfall, but uh, nevertheless, watching their blue wings and their red eyes, and it was a terrific thing in the hot, hot summer day. Looked around and looked at the dragonflies, and then far away I heard the cry of, heads up! And I turned around just in time to watch an enormous kid drill a line drive straight at me. And of course, I was transfixed. The ball grew larger and larger and larger in my vision, like a cheap science fiction uh, film, like When Worlds Collide, Here Comes the Giant Meteorite. And it hit me in the head, and I was poleaxed. I went down like a, uh, I went down like a ten pin, and the next thing I knew, I see a, a circle of faces, a little bit of blue sky over me with vague concern. And that was the end of my baseball career. And that was one of the things that drove me underwater. Well, I can understand. Now, one of the things about underwater photography is that it involves a, a, a certain amount of technology just getting the camera under the water. Talk about your first attempts, um, for, you know, just taking pictures anywhere. What, what made you take a camera, and then what made you take a camera underwater, and how did you get permission to do that? The first camera that I had was a Brownie Hawkeye. It was a square little camera that shot 620 film. When you clicked the shutter, it made a click, click, then you wound the film, wind. We put the camera, my father and I, in an anesthesiologist bag. <laughs> he was a professor of surgery at NYU, and he brought it down from the hospital. Took an old French mask, undid the clamps of the mask and the faceplate of the mask, 
put that in the front of the anesthesiologist bag and put the clamp back on, and lo and behold, there was an underwater camera. What you could do is you manipulated the controls through the soft sides of the anesthesiologist bag. Of course, our first uh, attempts were, were ridiculous because we forgot to take the air out. Then we got the thing underwater, and I managed to make a few pictures and a few more, and that was those, those were the first pictures I took in, in Elbron, New Jersey, in the green-brown waters. Um, there was a picture of a foot, I think, and a tail of a fish, and, and another foot, and then my foot, and then something else unidentifiable, possibly the Loch Ness Monster. And uh, that was the, they were terrible pictures. Underwater photography has always been a struggle between humans, cameras, and the ocean, a kind of a, a tripartite war. Uh, the ocean has a desire to get into any kind of camera housing that you uh, uh, have and own or manufacture or pay for or build yourself. Uh, the light is tenuous underwater, terrific sometimes, very difficult to control other times. Colors disappear within the first three feet. Everything people have always feared about photography comes true underwater. It's a bit like photographing in the rain at night uh, with moving objects that you can't quite see and you only have 100 feet at best to see them in a world you don't know and you only have a, a very short time. That's the parameters. Uh, I had another housing, a vicious vicious British housing called a Lewis Photo Marine. It was maroon. You had a choice of having a gear that could focus the lens or having a gear that could change the f-stops, but not both. <laughs> it's the lady or the tiger. Yeah, I had my brother-in-law at the time, uh, quite intellectual, uh, would wear berets and smoke Goldwasser cigarettes, once told me, uh, that uh, focus uh, was passé. <laughs> but I didn't believe him. So the choice was uh, obviously focus, not f-stop, and I began to shoot black and white because of the latitude of the film. And those are the first pictures that were published, first pictures I sold. At the time, I began to work How old on were two you? jobs. I was about 15 when I sold the first pictures. I was about 14, 13 or 14 when I began to really successfully make pictures. Wow. I worked. It's a prodigy kind of thing. And that's an interesting thing to be a prodigy in. Well, in a field that there was not a lot of people, it's a good place to start. Yeah, I guess. And so I worked as a diving guide in the Bahamas at, a, at a, one of the early proto-dive resorts called Small Hope Bay. And the Birch family, Dick Birch especially, took me under his wing and said, you can, you can do this. You can do what you need to do. So on my off hours, I would take the camera. And the rest of the time, I would uh, fuel the boats, pump the tanks, lug the tanks around. Um, eventually, I was driving the boats, and eventually, I became a dive master. I was good in the water, a lousy boat captain, terrible with anchors. I, at least a half a dozen times, I threw the anchor with a rope wrapped around my ankle. I would, you know, stand on the bow of the boat saying, this is a terrific reef, and off I'd go over the side of the boat. <laughs> Whoop! <laughs> and the other, other point in time, I began to work at Sandy Hook Marine Lab. And this was a, 
an eye-opener and an education in a field that was just beginning, and that, that field is humans' realization of the planet. That was the name of uh, the field that we, we were just beginning to think about. It was af just after the, uh, a book by Rachel Carson, Carson, The Silent Spring, I worked with a, as an assistant to a man named Ronald Eisler, who was doing the first experiments on marine pollution, on marine, um, I guess marine pollution would be the best thing. He used, we, uh, we worked with parathion and malathion, two general, uh, general pol uh, pollutants, heavy metal pollutants. Poisons. Poisons, and of course, one of the worst poisons turns out to be soap suds. Mm. And nobody knew what the effect was on things like Manidia Manidia, the Atlantic silver side. So here I was in the lab with a, another, another co-worker, a guy named Stu Wilk, who eventually headed the lab uh, in the basement of an old army barracks built in the 1888, 1888, 1889, in Sandy Hook, New Jersey, with beakers that were left over from the Challenger expedition. God, I wish I could have one of those now. Hoping not to electrocute each other with, with uh, sort of primitive electric pumps filling and, and emptying these jars and watching the fish swim or die and keeping track of them. And, uh, after a while, I was, uh, by the time I was 17, I was the chief photographer in the lab during my summer. That really is prodigy material, and it's so interesting. And I loved shooting. I loved photography. I loved, I loved cameras. I liked film. I liked the darkroom. I can tell by when I look at your work, there's a lot of work that comes after. It, it's such, so interesting. When I was 18, I went to Brooks Institute mm -hmm. as a summer uh, summer school, the first pilot project in underwater photography. My God. And uh, Ernie Brooks was a great mentor and teacher, and still a, still a really good friend, brilliant photographer. Let's talk a little bit about um, your, your, one of the things you told me was the vision of humans on this planet. And this seems to be uh, at a core of all your work when I look at it. And it's very clear and, and beautifully and artistically expressed. Um, could you tell me about the time when you first like looked, stood on a, a beach and you see an ocean and it looks essentially to us standing on the beach featureless and somewhat uninteresting except for the waves. But realizing that what was underneath the waves was far more complex and far vaster and far more filled with life than anything else that you are surrounded with and consider normal. It's funny, you know, it, it's, it's a very interesting observation. For as long as humans have been on the planet, we've looked out, stood on the, stood on the edge of the sea, stood on the edge of the balcony. We might, might watch the sea otters, see a bit of kelp poke over the over the skin of the surface of the sea, look out, watch the sunset bottling down into the Pacific. And beneath the skin, it was unknown. It was uh, a different world. It was out of sight, out of mind, and we were looking right at it. You cross this barrier, you go beneath the water, and as Cousteau said, civilization vanishes with one last bow. But it's replaced by a world where light does very different things, where every creature has to obey different sort of rules, an environment 
six or seven hundred times thicker than air. And something else happens too is, as an underwater photographer, you're floating. This is photography that's weightless. Wow, I never thought of it that way. What an interest. That must seriously change, I guess, in a sense, everything. You're used to when you, as a painter or an artist, if you're sitting in a room and painting, you know everything's going to stick to the ground. <laughs> it's absolutely unquestionable. Not only is everything going to stick to the ground, so are you. Yes. And so in a world where you have to have light, it means that you're floating around with strobe, uh, uh, strobes attached to your cameras by long spider-like arms. It's the nightmare of photography that you will become a paparazzi. In other words, have flash on camera, F-O-C, flash on camera. And instead of making pictures that have the quality of, of uh, quality portraits like the famous portraits that Karsh of Ottawa did, with wonderful rim light and beard light and every follicle of Hemingway's beard stands out in the picture. You're swimming around and trying to and trying to be an underwater paparazzi, cornering a fish in a dark nightclub and giving it a zets with a flash. It's a, a fear that photographers do, underwater photographers do have. So you have to consider yourself all of a sudden a floating studio. So you're a floating studio swimming around in a world that's happening instantaneously, in a world where there are Cartier-Bresson moments, fish eating fish, fish chasing fish, the flash of a tuna going by you that you'll never catch again, the moment of a shark, all of which cries and begs you to have a camera that's simply like the famous French photographer Cartier-Bresson, his little Leica that he could raise from... Uh, a hanging position around his neck up to his eye, instantaneously make the image capture that moment, that decisive moment, and down goes the Leica again. But here you are underwater with a giant camera that's the size of, I guess the closest thing is the size of a microwave with a huge dome in the front of it to correct the, to correct the magnification underwater with great big flashes at the end of long arms to add this bit of light and hoping that this Cartier-Bresson moment is going to happen in front of your camera because there's absolutely no way you're going to swing this beast around and capture anything, no matter how strong you are. You know, one of the things when I was thinking about your art, that uh, most art, for example, painting or writing, you uh, the artist begins and works through a long process, and, and creating the work itself is a it takes most of the time but with photography there is this build up and understanding of a vision then there's like a guillotine moment and it's just it's faster than the blink of an eye i believe uh where the work is created and then there's the the moment afterwards when you take that work and and bring it to the the people who will see it to your audience and I think that's a really unusual form of art that must be kind of uh, tense. The tenseness in photography that's unbelievable. Because here's what you do. It's exactly right. What you do is you have this frame. And this is for a lot of different kinds of photography. For most photography, you're dealing with a frame the size of 35 millimeter frame, a little bit bigger than two and a half inches or two inches. Everything that you see in front of you, that moment 
all the surrounding environment, the action of your subject, be it a fish or a child or a, a chipmunk or even a leaf blowing back and forth, has a decisive moment, has a moment that you capture, a moment that's made up of gesture and time and light. Meanwhile, everything that you've thought about in your life, my parents didn't understand me, I don't like peanut butter, uh, I can't stand reading Rimbaud, but I certainly liked Hemingway. Uh, all of these things roll into this frame subconsciously. And then you push the button. Or you do something even better. You hold the button down for a couple frames, a burst, one, two, three. And within that, there's something. And now with digital, you can shoot forever and ever and ever. And Sometimes it's a good idea. Other times it's a little bit like hosing something down with a camera. <laughs> um, but the funny thing is that it's all got to happen in that frame. How you perceive light, how you want something to, to look, what exactly is really happening there. Photography isn't just capturing something in a flat sequence, a moment, some kind of true journalistic... Um, endeavor where you say, well, that's what it really looked like. Because that's what it really looked like is that's what you thought it really looked like. So we look at images through the photographer's eyes. And the photographer's eye has all of that behind him. And if it's successful, or her, and if it's a successful image, then the essence of what you're photographing will come rolling through. One of the things I think that's... Uh so interesting uh, about uh, photography too is that um, it's a very it's a very technological art. I mean, it could not possibly have existed until cameras existed. It's not something like writing or painting that you know the cave dwellers could do, and it reached a kind of technological plateau. And I'm not super conversant with this, but I'm guessing somewhere around nine, from 1950 to 1990 there was a certain state of the art of photography which was defined by a fine 35 millimeter camera or a fine camera with a lens and there wasn't a lot of combating that that was you that your platform you were working on was stable and in the past you know 20 years this has just been thrown into chaos and it must be very odd for you to have gone from working on what was kind of a stable and fairly easy to grok platform to something that where it, literally one day to the next your capabilities your possibilities your potentialities just change like lightning and in ways that can significantly inform or disinform your vision we've just gone through an incredible revolution it's been really quick at national geographic our editor chris john stood up and said a couple of years ago he said in two years, this magazine will not be using film. And this was in a day when digital cameras had, at the best, a five megapixel uh, base on them. And all us photographers groaned and said, oh, this is impossible. And in two years, the magazine went from being 98% film to 98% digital. I can't think of a revolution that's happened any quicker than that. Uh, technological revolution. Um, so the older photographers 
always say, well, I used to know exactly what I was doing when I was shooting film. And now I don't know exactly what I'm doing when I'm shooting uh, digital. And the newer digital photographers are saying, well, you know, how did you get that light? I just look at a picture and push the button, and then I can uh, do the work and, and, and uh, Photoshop. <laughs> and the best story that I can think of in digital versus film was a picture that I made, and it shows a circle of barracuda. And in the middle of the circle is a diver. The diver's name is, uh, diver's name is Di uh, Dinah Halstead. And I actually went into the Barracuda School in New Hanover near, uh, near uh, New Ireland in the corner of the Bismarck Sea in Papua New Guinea. I swam into the school. It was an enormous school. It began to circle me, and I realized that I was the picture. I was in the middle of the picture that I wanted to take. So I went back to the boat, and I convinced Dinah, who, with her husband Bob Halstead, ran the boat called Toledo, and she said, oh, okay. And we went back, and the uh, barracudas were there. Fortunately, huge school. We swam through them side by side, and they began to form this perfect circle. And I dove like a, a, a dive bomber pilot right to the bottom, rolled on my back at about 45 feet, crossed my fingers, looked up, and there the circle circled Dinah. The barracuda circled Dinah once, twice, three times, and then they were gone. And in the middle of that, for one second, Dinah put out her hand like a, a ballet dancer. And it was a perfect moment. I was very proud of the picture. I liked it a lot. Now, the corollary is, if you think you're doing something really, really good, even if you're from California, some German is going to do it better. I opened an underwater magazine, German underwater magazine, called Unterwasser. And there in Unterwasser was the perfect circle of barracudas. Barracudas do this because it's a defense mechanism, and it makes a geometric pattern in the ocean, a circle, in a world without geometry. So that's why it's so terrific when it happens. And it doesn't happen often. So here's a perfect circle of barracuda. But in the middle of the circle wasn't a diver. It was a shark. And I said, oh, my God, how could this? This is incredible. And later at, uh, at a convention, I cornered the uh, editor, and I said, my God, this photographer is incredible. It's the most incredible picture I've ever seen. And he said, no, big guy named Heinz. He said, no, the photographer was terrible. We didn't like any of his pictures, so I, I photoshopped the shark into the barracuda. <laughs> So here we are in a world where we can really manipulate reality, really manipulate our pictures, change everything, and uh, there's a terrific uh, desire for everybody to do that, but we can't. And the only way you can really tell if a picture has been manipulated is ask the photographer. And of course the photographer could lie, or the photographer could tell the truth and say, yes, I cleaned it up, yes, I worked on it here, yes, I worked on it there. The other unfortunate thing about shooting digital pictures underwater is the medium, digital, uh, the digital camera itself, doesn't capture the blues, the greens, the crispness, the saturation of the underwater world like our old film, Kodachrome or Velvia, uh, Fuji Velvia film did. That's the reality that I'm working on. So you do have to work on the uh, picture to bring it back to reality. It's very funny, you, you add saturation, you add 
contrast, and it's like turning the lights on, lights off of a picture hanging on a wall. It's so fascinating. You know, no matter what you're photographing, I, I think what you bring to, to the table is a vision. And I think that that's by far the most important aspect of any photographer's work, and certainly of yours. Your work has this incredible vision of the world beneath, the world above, the intersection of the two. And your images are so indelible, I think, because, you know, you were talking earlier about photography as journalists, as a recorder. You know, you just snap a shot, and a lot of people, you know, the Kodak, you know, take pictures of your memories. Yeah. I think with your work, what you're doing is taking your memories and rendering them, and your vision, and rendering them um, powerfully enough and artistically enough so that we can look at them, and they can become part of our memory. And I wonder if you care to talk about that process of trying to create uh, an image that is powerful enough to become a memory in the, pers in the mind of the person who beholds it. My partner and my wife, Jennifer Hayes, and I go into the sea very much like trespassers into a distant land. And holding that thought to create something, to create this memory, is a question in those moments that we have in the ocean of con constantly looking around to watch how light works against something, to look at uh, what we're photographing, be it a, a giant goliath grouper or a shipwreck, all of which are objects in an alien and desperately interesting world, which as it turns out is most of our planet, oh, by the way. <laughs> uh, and then we have to translate that onto a sensor. I used to, I used to say a piece of film and translate that, um, that almost um, invisible group of electrons onto either a, a magazine format or a book or something that you can grasp and hold and look at. Now, to, to achieve that moment requires an enormous amount of time and a constant ability to keep shooting pictures. We used to, at, on an average assignment shoot, up to, between the two of us, up to 1,500, almost 1,800 rolls of film, of which the National Geographic would publish 14 pictures. <laughs> and people would say, well, how, you know, what a waste. And I said, if I knew the 14 pictures that were going to be published, I would only shoot one roll of film. We look at our world in a constant flow of very, very short moments, uh, 250th, 500th of a second, as we raise the cameras up, capturing a moment within a moment within a moment within a moment. And out of the thousands of images, one will roll into something that has a significant memory attached to it. Now, here's the difference between film and still photography. The essential difference. Still photography is about memories. Film is about passion and emotion. The most important pictures in the world, and I have a, a choice of the most important picture that I've ever seen in my life, made by uh, uh, 
William Anders, it was a famous picture called Earthrise, the earth from the moon. Moon is in the foreground, dull, brown, lifeless, almost like the old green cheese that we were all told it was made of. And in the background is earth rising, beautiful, blue, pure, water planet, laced with water, white clouds. He made another picture he liked better, which was the same picture, just a, a marble of the earth in the essential blackness of space, very tiny in a great black canvas. That's a picture that changed everybody's lives and did something very important to our profession of underwater photographers, photographers or nature photographers. It made every one of us instantly, within that moment, every one of us a frontline journalist. Journalism. Photojournalism is not about the human condition. It's about now the planet condition. The human condition is the planet condition. And that's what one picture did. The most important picture in the world. But wow. it's not. It's not the most important picture in the world. What's the most important picture in the world? I just couldn't even begin to tell you. For me, you it's, know, it's a picture obvious. of my wedding. <laughs> Absolutely right. The most important picture in the world is the picture of your family, your wedding, your, uh, your children, your wives, your, your parents, everybody that surrounds you. Uh, in the south, it would be your pickup truck. <laughs> in the northeast, it would be your dog. Uh, but those are the most important pictures in the world. Those are the memories that we not only carry in our minds, but we carry in our wallets or we carry in, a, in an album. And when a tornado wipes out a house in the Midwest, the first thing you see people looking for after they, after they look for their pets, the first thing they look for is pictures. Still pictures will never go away. Moving pictures may roll through our lives, but still pictures mark our lives. That's a really interesting observation. Now, now one of the things I think that you do uh, so, so well is to the, the pictures you take are of such high quality and uh, I think that there is clearly an art not just to the photography side but also just to the engineering side to getting that stuff down there I mean it just it, the fact that you can buy a $20 camera that will take pictures underwater now it, is, is interesting but I think that there's a real art form to getting the technology down there. Talk about, you know, the kind of your work as a technologist, as an inventor and, you know, and an engineer and getting that stuff down there. I think I think I think the best way to talk about that is that underwater photography is a constantly evolving technology that steals, borrows and begs from everybody else to get us underwater and yet develops our own and, and develops and deals with our own particular problems. An underwater camera has been described by overwater photographers as, oh, that's just a box that the camera goes in and, and we can make that. And truth is that you're looking through a, a big optical dome which corrects for the, uh, for the distortion and the magnification that water does uh, through a flat lens. Uh, and look at everybody in a flat lens uh, over water in a swimming pool and then put your head underwater and all of a sudden people's thighs become huge because everything gets magnified a quarter, 25%. So we have to deal with that. We have to deal with the fact that you have to manipulate the controls through one of these boxes 
and you need to, you need special O-rings and glands and, and uh, control rods to do that. The fact that these boxes have to go down to 200, 300, 400, 500 feet and not leak is another problem too. So Jennifer says you, you wrap a camera with a housing, wrap a camera around a housing. I like and, that vision. Yeah. And that requires an intense sculptural ability to make aluminum do what you want. Uh, in the world of CAD CAM, life is a little bit easier for design. And of course, each one of these underwater housings, you don't make hundreds of them. You don't make a uh, hundred of them in some cases. And then the perfidious camera companies, uh, Mr. Canon, Mr. Nikon, constantly change their cameras. Actually, digital photography is an exercise in buyer's remorse. <laughs> I imagine so. You know what you you know when you purchase the wrong thing? Oh yeah. yeah. When you put your credit card through the machine. <laughs> At that very moment you've bought the wrong thing. And uh, everything evolves. So it's fun. So a camera, new camera, they develop a new, let's say, a new Canon or a new Nikon. And, well, we could just put it back in the same old housing, except that they've moved one of the key buttons a quarter of an inch here, and they've lengthened the, the side of the chassis of the camera a quarter of an inch there, and it doesn't fit. And all of a sudden, this housing, and housings are really expensive housings. Well, to give you an idea, I have a housing, camera housing, camera, uh, an incredibly expensive zoom lens, an incredibly expensive digital camera, uh, two strobes, big optical glass dome. The whole business weighs about 24 pounds. I pick it up, I walk into the water, and I'm holding the cost of a Toyota. Uh, not a major Toyota, but nevertheless a, a, a Toyota. Uh, in the olden days, when we couldn't change film or lenses underwater, uh, Jennifer and I would go into the field with as many as 10 cameras, 10 cameras on, 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 on the ground underwater, because we, we, needed the, we needed the film. We needed more than 36 exposures uh, for a dive. We needed to have lenses that could do different things. The zoom lenses really didn't work terribly well until the last 10 years. Mm. And, of course, a lot of that's now changed. And, of course, the costs of, um, costs of the cameras have now changed. So, you, so the, the old 10-camera idea has now been reduced to maybe three cameras between the two of us. And it gets the job done. Uh, it's very, a a camera is very versatile, and you, you can shoot until you die underwater right now. Not just run out of, <laughs> not just run out of film, but uh, die of old age. Uh, you know, you have uh, different, really interesting, different photographic styles. Um, I, I love the uh, your uh, the the fish book, Fish Face, um, and, and in that book, you, you say that fish hate to have their port picture taken. <laughs> and uh, I, I, one of the things when I look at that book, it makes me think fish look kind of intelligent, and and maybe they are intelligent. They've Humans have uh, chosen the path of adapting the world to us. We change the world to fit our needs. Uh, the creatures beneath the sea have taken the opposite 
uh, path, and who's to say it's less intelligent? They've adapted themselves to their environment. But the way you photograph the fish and manage to get these things that don't want their picture taken to come right up to your lens and say hi is really remarkable. It's very difficult to make a fish picture. I mean, they really want to want run away. And, and quite frankly, I don't blame them. I mean, my God, here I am with my Toyota-sized camera underwater. Actually, it's really the size of a, a microwave or a bread box with, with big, long arms and, and things. If, if you think about a fish, I mean, Jennifer and I are down there, and we're dealing with a fish, and the fish can see 180 degrees with great uh, turret-like eyes, and they're looking around, and they're, you know, they have fish faces, and they're terrific. They're wonderful creatures. And they're facing us, huge monsters with bread box-sized cameras and long strobe-like arms, like some kind of industrial-strength uh, transformer spider crab that's making uh, brilliant flashes, and the first thing they want to do is uh, leave. I think after a while they perceive us as if we didn't exist, and eventually you can begin to look carefully into their lives. But in the time that we spent underwater, and remember there's two sets of uh, eyes looking in the sea when we go underwater. We, we may be in different directions on one corner of the reef away from each other, so we, we maximize our time there. And all that time, We've hardly ever, I think there's half a dozen times, we have a picture of a fish eating a fish. Now, obviously, that's how they make a living. Uh, <laughs> we have few moments where they're mating and spawning. You have to really anticipate that. And that's how, you know, that's their, their desire to, uh, to continue life. We have very brief time to make forays into their secret lives and to reveal anything about them. But we try. The pictures... In, the, in fish face are, are literally our portraits. It's like you got them to sit. Um, <laughs> th then we look at your book on sharks, and it's full of motion, and it's you know kind of an action-packed book. Even when we're looking at, at a mega mouth body, it looks like the thing's going to come out and snap our head off. And, and I'm wondering if you talk about creating that different sensibility for different books, and, and including Water, Light, and Time, which is like a, an incredible thing we'll talk about a lot more. For the portraits, for the portraits that I'm shooting and Jennifer's shooting, we want to isolate, isolate the fish. Mm. We want to look as deeply as we can into their eyes. The most important aspect in photography, especially portrait photography, is intimacy. It's an eye-level look. We started working on a, a story on nudibranchs, for instance, in the idea of intimacy. It, we wanted to be eye level, so we built these studios that we could mount on tripods. The studios were a 10-inch 10, 10 square plex, plexiglass white box that we could light from three different sides and even light through the back of the box. And the nudibranchs were carefully moved from the seabed just uh, 10 feet away. Uh, we had some help with some terrific uh, uh, biologists and uh, naturalists. To, to help us work with the nudibranchs. We'd put them into this studio. They'd become accustomed to the studio and, and move back and forth like, uh, well, like fashion models, flaunting their, their skirts, raising their gills in the back, moving their rhinophores, and being incredibly colorful. But it was all about intimacy. You know, those photographs are so beautiful uh, because the, the creatures you're photographing are so alien 
they almost look like they're, um, the, the way that they're printed, they look like paintings. Uh, they don't look like photographs. They look like paintings. Uh, and they have that kind of, I think, uh, emotional heft of a yeah. painting. And, and they also seem kind of abstract, almost like icons, you know. The, it, you could just take some of those pictures and turn them into, you know, an icon for, uh, who knows what, a grocery store, fast food chain, <laughs> sea slug burgers. <laughs> slug burgers. Yeah. Come one, come all. Colorful, delicious, poisonous, toxic. <laughs> Jennifer and I looked at uh, the way we were printing them initially uh, on uh, Fuji, uh, Fuji, uh, not Fuji, um, Fuji Crystal Archive paper. And then we uh, began to work with canvases, and uh, she said, let's try these on canvases. And the first canvases came back in, in our studio uh, at home, and I said, there's something different about this. We, the, the one single chrom chromodorus that has a kind of, uh, you can almost see what looks like eyes. They're actually just spots beneath the, the skirt of the nudibranch. Nudibranch's eyes are these feather-like protrusions called rhinophores. And it's raising its skirt, looks like a kind of a, a 1930s cloche hat, and moving back and forth. It went crazy viral on the internet. People were, were, uh, people were uh, sending us pictures where they basically pimped, uh, pimped this nudibranch right out and <laughs> strutted its stuff, and uh, it was a surprise. You printed uh, that on canvas, like painting canvas? This, the, the prints we have now are... Uh, printed on canvas of the nudibranchs. It's a, not a, a painting canvas, but it's a very fine art photography canvas that has a very, very good, brilliant whites. And we took a look at it and said, that's the way these things should look for this show. Now, uh, and I think, it, I think it worked very well. We, we worked with a lot of canvas in the show right now, and I think it was successful. You know, one of the things you do, and you do, we see this a lot in Water, Light, and Time, is to show a kind of a split screenshot where you'll see where you'll see what's beneath the surface and what's above the surface. And I think this is really kind of a core of your artistic vision. Um, we'll see, uh, you know, the beautiful ways, but essentially the above the surface looks somewhat desert-like, and underneath and we'll just see a, a brilliant, shimmering wall of bait fish, and above we've got a, uh, a lone fisherman. Uh, we'll see this incredibly uh, powerful-looking manta ray, um, and above we've got clouds. Could you talk about how you create that? Is that two exposures, or is that just, how, that is a really remarkable, I, what, however you do that, tell me. A lot of uh, people call these, uh these pictures, uh, split-screen pictures or splits. I always refer to that as a, a dessert uh, involving bananas. <laughs> but uh, Jennifer and I like to call them half-in and half-out-of-the-water pictures or half-and-half half pictures. It's a, it's a technique and a concept that was developed first by a man named Coles Finzi at Sports Illustrated mm -hmm. years and years ago and then passed on to Bates Littlehales, my mentor at Geographic, who invented the camera system with a large dome. The first one was called the Ocean Eye. And we found using these large domes and wide-angle lenses that you could have this terrific vision uh, without a lot of Sturm and uh, Drang photographically. You'd have to balance the focal length of the lens out from above and below water by using things like diopters, which are 
lenses that are cut in half, uh, mm. supplementary lenses that are cut in half, and uh, correct uh, the magnification. Now, there was we corrected the magnification for underwater. You have to recorrect the magnification for the mm. surface, so you make a half lens or a super wide angle lens. And all of a sudden, this vision existed. A lot of pictures are successful that way. They have to be successful because there has to be something really intriguing going on above the water as well as a super really intriguing uh, situation going on below the water. In other words, a hyper mm. situation going on below the water. And if you can balance the, that concept out, then the picture will work. You can't simply say, oh, let's have two divers swimming beneath the dive boat. That's not going to work. You have to have uh, the fishermen working at sunset, the hump of uh, Lord Howe Island in the background, or the work in the Cayman Islands, which is just these incredible Caribbean clouds and light. And that enough works. And then there's one other picture that has clouds, light, and a sailboat. Mm. But Jennifer seems to like the other one, which is a simple picture of a ray of noonday, or near noonday light, patterning on the bottom. Mm, I know what you're referring to. this wonderful group of clouds boiling along the edge of the, uh, edge of the surface on the top. And it's a, it's a kind of a palette of blue and white and clouds and water. And it connects the two things. And I, I love taking these pictures. It seems to me it, it kind of ties everything together. Recently, we were on the Barrier Reef, and we searched and we searched and we searched for an island I shot years ago that eventually we realized was covered up by storm, but it was just sand, coral, clouds, island, sand, underwater. And everything came together that way. Uh, they're hard pictures to make conceptually and, uh, and to find them in, in the ocean world. They're difficult to find and make it work. And then I realized that they all began, I mean, this whole idea of wanting to do these pictures began with that Cousteauian thought, that you put your head above water and you see trolley cars and light poles and people on the beach and you put your head below water and civilization vanishes as one last bow. It's a hinge pin of vision of, uh, of the oceans. And people like them, I like them. I like that kind of placement of us in this ocean world. I think one of the things that your work does, it's really, I think, rather important, more important now than ever, um, as we're, we find we actually have the capability of annihilating our environment without even being aware that we're doing so. And one of the things that your photographs do is show us exactly what, what's going away. And I think that's a really powerful statement, a powerful way of conveying a whole series, a whole concept, a whole vision of the world, a balance of ecology, of not, you know, trying not to have an impact, to have that all come across in one, you know, single image. You just look at it, you see it, and you understand what's going on. I think the idea of what's going away is maybe the most powerful and important vision that works in trying to convince the unconvinced that this planet indeed is truly changing. As the planet warms, water warms, the vast amount of CO2 absorbed in the ocean has changed the very, very chemistry of the ocean, mm, mm. something that Jennifer and I have been working on on the Barrier Reef uh, for a long time, 
it's a Damoclean sword hanging over all of us. The oceans are obviously the front line, and it's not just the poles, but it's the reefs, the barrier reefs, and the kelp forests. Everything is going to be affected by this vast change. You can talk about it till you're blue in the face. What we have to do is amaze, intrigue, even sometimes astound people in saying, this is what's going away. This is what's, what we're going to lose. The sad part about our photographing existence now is we may be documenting a place and a time that will not exist on this planet in 100 years. What I thought was images of exploration may be documents of uh, time gone by. Extinction. You know, one thing that uh, t truly amazes me about your work is how painterly the photographs are. I'm thinking of, there's a photograph of uh, sharks with remora on them, uh, all the, the pictures in water, light, and time. They look like, many of them, I w if you told me that you had painted them, I would believe you. And if you told me you photographed them, and I'm assuming you have, <laughs> uh, I would go, my God, how did you do that? And talk about creating, taking a technology that's tilted towards uh, strict, straight documentation and doing whatever it is you do to bring it and make it seem more flowing, artistic. I, I'm not sure exactly what there is about ambience about your photographs, how to describe it, but painterly is the best I can do. Well, that's a wonderful compliment. Uh, I think that. What happens with a photograph that works or ones that's more painterly than the next is how light is used. And it may be a simple tilt of the light on the, on the edge of a, a strobe arm. It may be trying to balance the light out with the existing natural light by using the shutter speed and gathering in more uh, uh, ambient light, existing light. It might be the way the camera moves through the water, or it might be the time that when I was growing up in, in New York City, of doodling around the uh, Metropolitan Museum, constantly looking at uh, paintings by Turner and Winslow Homer and uh, Fra Filippo Lippi from the Renaissance. I think in, in terms of, uh, of a photographer's education, I was very, very lucky because a lot of it had to do with painting. Mm. And... Uh, a lot of photographers are, are brilliant artists. The only thing that I control is a shark. <laughs> I can doodle it all over the place. And Jennifer says, well, draw a walrus, and it doesn't come out. It looks more like a cat. Or the sharks look like a cat. I mean, the cats look like a shark. And it's, uh, it's that, that disconnect between eye, brain, and hand. <laughs> Well, your brain is surely connected to your camera. I, I want to see if we can get uh, Jennifer to come in here and join us. I still uh, like that frog picture. I know you do. Uh, and I know you do. That's all I'm saying. I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that you've done, David, is, is uh, photography is a collaborative effort. I mean, you've collaborated with National Geographic. You've collaborated with the people who help you build the technology. You've also, in the process of becoming essentially one of our foremost marine scientists, collaborated with, with scientists who don't dive down and take the pictures. And, and you've also collaborated with Jennifer here. So I'd like the two of you to talk about how you work together to make these photographs come, come out the way they do. Jennifer, uh, 
talk about your part, your vision, and, and where you come from as a photographer and underwater photographer. Um, I started underwater photography out of necessity, literally out of necessity. My background is science, and uh, it's marine biology and aquatic biology, and I used to give a, a lot of presentations and talks at symposiums, scientific symposiums, and where we would meet and collaborate with scientists. and. I would have all sorts of pie graphs and bar charts and all sorts of things going up on these screens of a magnificent, talking about a magnificent animal called the sturgeon. And they are literally large, beautiful, rare animals doing wonderful behavior. And here comes a pie chart discussing this large, beautiful, rare animal and only words were describing it. And a lot of the other scientists had a similar situation. And, I, and we were diving with them to get this, I was watching this and diving with them to get this data. And I said, oh my gosh, we can do better than this. This is silly. How do I convey? I can capture people's attention if I can put a graphic in front of them. So it, it pushed me off the cliff to, to just begin to acquire the skills and the equipment to, to start photography within science and then go to symposiums and put up. Now I have these wonderful images of these sturgeon that are like, oh my God, where did that come from? It's fabulous. And, and, and the conversations and the science just... It, it, it's synergistic when they, see, when they see the animal that you were talking about. And I took that from there kind of forward into natural history writing. Now, David, you've been with National Geographic, and the two of you are with National Geographic now uh, for many years. Talk about collaborating with, with National Geographic as behind you. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good deal. They're, they seem like they must treat you well, and their product uh, uh, <laughs> suggests that they, that they treat all the people they work with well. I think that that's probably, on the whole, an accurate uh, description. However, working, we were just discussing this last night, working on an assignment for National Geographic is in many ways a dream. It is a complete dream. And it's not just the fact that we're on assignment, but the fact is that the pictures that we make have the best window uh, of any journal in the world they'll reach out across continents and seas to 40 million people. And that is an extraordinary voice, a photographic voice. And you think about that from time to time. You can't basically think about that when you're making the picture because you'll scare yourself to death. It's like kind of a photographic stage fright. That being said, uh, when we go on assignment, we have to produce. If you take the king's shilling, you have to do the king's bidding, but you have to come back and produce stuff more than what they've asked for. You have to go one step farther every time. Jennifer? It is. It's a, it's a wonderful platform to take a story out on and show the world. It could be um, something you're interested in and you propose this idea and the geographic says okay they get behind you and it's terrifying it's a terrifying responsibility to do it right it's everybody's like wow what a what a dream job and you're like it's a little stressful <laughs> um and you and it has to be done right and and well and and it has to represent because there's a lot at stake there's a lot at stake for the story what you're trying to tell it's about the organism or the ecosystem or the there's a lot at stake and you have to get it right and there's, there's a lot of collaboration. You meet an entire range of scientists and animals. The creatures that you meet and greet in the sea are just 
it's unbelievable. You just stop swimming and you say, is that even possible that I'm looking at that? But there's this whole infrastructure of proposals and research and, and then preparation and then moving all the gear and getting, it's, it's a very physical job. It's very physical and then moves into the artistic with the photography. You know, one of the other collaborators I was thinking about that's important for you is uh, are your publishers, not just National Geographic, but Feodon Press, who just does produces some pretty damn spectacular books. Um, talk about, you know, when you, you have created this image that you have hanging on the wall in the gallery there, but that's going to be mass-produced and put into a book somewhere, or, or as you say, distributed over the Internet <laughs> and monkeyed with. Uh, talk about uh, working with stuff to... <laughs> To, you know, for the publishers, you know, to when you hand them off your beautiful work, you know, making sure that it's going to still represent your vision when it ends up in my hands as a reader. The difficulty is editing, curating, as it were. And a book is a lot, a lot different than a magazine article. Basically, the thrust and, and direction of the book is in our hands mm -hmm. rather than the publishers. And the publishers make different choices and do some of the uh, more important editing and final editing of what what's going to happen. But in essence, we have to think about what we want in a book, what we want out of a book, what we one of us thinks is a great picture and the other doesn't like at all, and we go back and forth. And uh, it's funny, the disagreement and the differences of opinion are as important as the agreements. It really is important. And when we're working together, I tend to get fixated on something. Jennifer looks at a longer, wider, uh, more important view, and then we go back and forth. She says, you've missed this, you've missed this, you've missed this. Uh, why aren't you thinking about that? And um, on the other hand, she'll find something that he says, oh, well, I kind of like this. And I said, you've got to go back and get this. This is an incredible image. It's, it's working together that's a joy uh, a lot of the times. It's tension. It's ulcerous a bit. And uh, in the end, it's the most important, one of the most important uh, joys in our lives. Jennifer, talk about writing the text, for example, in the shark book. I mean... Uh, you're you're collaborating with him on a you know a, in a different medium. Mm -hmm. It's um it's fun because there's a, there's a lot to draw from, a lot of different experiences, and what do you include in there? What do you exclude? What you know? Do you do you talk about the humiliating moments? Maybe not. <laughs> um, do you do you embrace a humiliating moment? Maybe not. Um, <laughs> you. <clears throat> Well, tell us about some humiliating, humiliating moments, moments with, it, the, with the uh, shark, sir. It could be when you some you're working alone with uh, a group of sand tiger sharks in South Africa, and you think you think everything's great, and the next thing you know, you're being bitten in the behind by a sand tiger because your butt has is sticking up, and I'm I'm working on the bottom, and and at looking and photographing something in front of me and my my butt is sticking up and the next thing I know I'm like wow what the and I was literally bitten in the behind 
and said, okay, that's clever. No one saw that. I can just <laughs> go on and no one needs to know that happened. And uh, I get back on the boat and two or three people, including David, uh, look at me and say, is there something you'd like to share with us? And I said, not exactly. Why? And they said, because you have shark teeth embedded in your wetsuit on your behind. And I said, oh my, I wonder how those got there. <laughs> um, but it was, uh, and it wasn't the shark's fault and it wasn't, it was a slight piercing of the skin and more humorous than any, more hum humorous and humiliating perhaps, um, that it, that my butt was that protruding that it might be considered testable, so there that would be but we didn't include that in, in that particular book that I just said no we don't need to discuss that let's just put that one to bed thank you very much boy that would have been a great picture right there I mean I said shark teeth embedded in the wetsuit yeah, how could you miss it well <laughs> and it was a quarter inch wetsuit the reason I didn't know they were there it literally is a it's a it's a quarter inch wetsuit mm -hmm. very comfortable very stretchy and it, the the case was the shark, sharks lose their teeth all the time mm. quite well. And when he tested this particular product, um, he left a few teeth behind. <laughs> and evidence of my rare and humiliating moment. So, <laughs> David, tell us about some moments you have that we, ha we haven't seen photographs of. There's a really telling moment, and it's actually the, the back picture of the shark book that Jennifer took. And I'm fixating on a shark that's kind of swimming around somewhere else. And I have my camera up. And two, two Caribbean reef sharks are basically cruising right over my head and I'm totally oblivious. And she made this wonderful picture in this wonderful moment. And uh, you can't see 100% uh, in the ocean. You, can't, you don't have this great sweep of, of vision, uh, this peripheral vision. So I, I don't especially because of the mask I wear. And uh, there's always something going on. A terrific, a terrific moment. I'd been bitten by turtles and eels and other things. Not very much sharks. We, when we're working with sharks, we sometimes have to work back to back uh, mm. because they will become uh, obstreperous and rambunctious. And uh, you must push them away and react to them constantly. Interesting. You talk about them like they're people. Um, no, they're they're sharks. <laughs> sharks with personalities, yeah. like people. Sharks are not people too. They're sharks. Yeah, <laughs> One of the things that you do as a photographer <clears throat> is to uh, bring us pictures of creatures we've never seen before. And in the latest uh, issue of the National Geographic, you. Uh, Set your sights on eels. Now, one of the things, when I looked at some of your photography, uh, at your photographs for this piece, um, it just really struck me how difficult this must be to work in. It must be like going from taking pictures in a, a football stadium to trying to photograph a family of gnomes living in somebody's sock drawer. <laughs> in the sock drawer? There's a terrific story on freshwater eels in the August issue. Terrific because the author, James Prosak, has written a wonderful story. There's some pretty interesting images of eels. Remember, the creatures that love the night. So do look at that story. It's a kind of a, an eye-opener to a creature which is under our feet in the rivers and ponds 
but, but has the most incredible lifestyle of any uh, fish in the world. You know, one of the things that you have uh, have a photo in there of is are the eels in Japan that are worth more of their weight in gold. The Japanese, the Japanese love a dish called kabayaki. It's broiled eel, uh, marinated in sweet soy sauce. It's delicious. It's a summer dish. Uh, for them, it makes you feel cool and warm at the same time. It has a lot of uh, a lot of really good things uh, to make your skin look good. It's it's delicious. They are addicted to eels as we are addicted to cheeseburgers on the grill in the summer. Now, to get that point, eels, the whole eel business worldwide is, um, is basically the transportation of live animals. So the eels that the Japanese gobble down may begin as a glass eel up an inch and a half long clear eel larvae, not, excuse me, an inch and a half long clear eel, young juvenile, just past larval stage that migrate up into the rivers. They dip net them in the coast of Maine. They dip net them all over the rest of the world, but only in the, only in the state of Maine is it, is it legal to dip net these things. They're kept alive in aquariums, shipped live across the world to great big fe underwater feedlots in China, and then when they reach the point they're a, a little less than a meter long, they're shipped to Japan, cut up into four perfect slices, broiled and sold and eaten by the million. You can eat an eel in a restaurant for $250 a plate. You can have an eel dog on the Hanamatsu truck stop for $375. In either case, down it goes, down the hatch, and because of that, eels are threatened all over the world. What once was 50% of the North American biomass and all our rivers and streams and Great Lakes has now dropped almost to zero. And that is because of the great dams in the Great Lakes. They can't mi migrate through them. And of course, overfishing all over the world. It's a pretty fascinating story for a creature that we know nothing about. We don't know when they were born and where they die, but we know they're uh, in between lives. Born in the sea, live their lives on land, die in the sea. As sea serpents. They're they are sea serpents. They are the real sea serpents. And uh, this story that Jennifer and I did was a journey all over the world. Uh, from Sweden, from, from our house in, uh, on the, on the, from our house on the St. Lawrence River in the Thousand Islands to the coast of Maine, to the coast of um, Delaware, to uh, Japan, to New Zealand. Uh, these are the lives of eels, which incidentally is not running as a soap opera on NBC. I've been speaking with David Dubelay and Jennifer Hayes. They're here for the Blue Ocean Film Festival in Monterey, California. Thank you for joining me, David and Jennifer. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>